Open your Bibles with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 10. I trust that you're gaining some things out of this study about the renewing the mind, and we're sneaking up on the techniques. <laughs> but it's important to lay a foundation. And everything we've done has been very purposeful, very, very important. And even this, what we're doing right now is as we get ready for it. We're talking about the process and, and what's involved in the process. And we've, we've talked about what renewing the mind is, why it's important. We've talked about certain keys to renewing the mind. We've taught you how to find your mind in case you lost it. Um, we've taught you how to get control of your mind in case it's out of control. And, uh, and now we're learning about some, some techniques that are important for this. And so in the, in the process is described uh, here in this chapter. Second uh, Corinthians chapter 10, we'll start in verse 1. Now I, Paul, myself, am pleading with you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ, who in presence am lowly among you, talking about himself, but being absent and bold towards you. But I beg you that when I'm present, I may not be bold with that confidence by which I intended to be bold, as some of you think of us, as if we walked according to the flesh. Now just, I don't want to get off on this, but just some background there to what he's really saying. This letter, as well as the first letter, was written in response to an attitude that these churches in Corinth had. Corinth is the very southern part of, 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 um, of Greece, very intellectual city. In fact, it was, one of the, it was a Roman capital. It was a, a head of a, a Roman consulate was there. It was a very metropolitan. It was kind of like a New York City where all kinds of things melded together. Athens was the philosophical center, and, and, and Corinth was in many ways a religious center. And, and these are, so these are pagans that have gotten saved by and large. And, and, and like so many young Christians, they got full of themselves. <laughs> and Paul established a church there and then moved on. And he began to get reports back there that all kinds of wonderful spiritual things were happening. The gifts of the spirits were, were moving, were flowing in abundance. There were miracles taking place. But just because those things are happening doesn't mean people are growing spiritually and maturing spiritually. And so it, it grew to the point where they became so proud of the gifts that they had, so proud of the things God had shown them, they, they never hadn't developed the maturity and the, and the character to handle those things. And it got so bad, they got to the point that it's reported they wouldn't allow Paul back into the church he founded. So much of 1 Corinthians is written to correct that, and then they had a response to that. There was another letter went back and forth, and then this letter is written as a follow-up to that. So much of this letter is written from a sarcastic tone. Paul had a very sharp tongue, and he's very sarcastic, but he does, it with, he does it not to hurt them, he does it to make a point with them. And so what he, we're reading here is really in response to an attitude that they have had about him. Because they were accusing him of being a hypocrite. They accused him of being very bold when he was absent from them, but being very meek when he was with them. And so, in other words, you, you, when you get among us, you, you write strong letters, but when you get among us, you back down. And so, they had no idea who they were dealing with. <laughs> They had no idea of the maturity of the man that they were dealing with and that the revelation by which he taught them was one he got by a personal experience with Jesus, which they hadn't had. Kind of like Moses and being, being addressed by his sister Miriam and his brother Aaron. You know, well, God speaks to us too. Yeah, but God didn't speak face to face with them. <laughs> and they displayed, they, they, they displayed their spiritual immaturity and uh, so this is kind of what's behind the scenes here. And so they had accused him being very fleshly. So when Paul says, for if we walk, for, for some of us accuse us of walking according to the flesh, verse 3, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war in the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, they're not of the flesh, they're mighty in God for the pulling down of strongholds, casting down imaginations or arguments, the New King James says, in every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to obedience to Christ. Now Paul is talking here about a process about maturing them, a process about this 
renewing the mind, because we've learned that what renewing the mind is all about is once you've come to Christ, it's taking all that was put in you when you received Christ and bringing that to the outside so that it shows up in your behavior, your attitude, your, your, your conduct, your, 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 the way you're, you're, you, know, you speak, everything about you, which the Bible refers to as your conversation. It doesn't just mean your talk. It means the way you live your life. Jesus in in Acts chapter 1 tells them to wait in Jerusalem until they're endued with power from on high and then they will be his witness. He doesn't tell them to go witness, although that's a good thing to do. He says, but it's more valuable for you just to be a witness. And so it's the change that works itself to the outside and the process for doing that, Paul describes in in Romans chapter 12 verse 2 as renewing the mind. We're transformed by renewing the mind. And here Paul is addressing that same process. We've talked about thoughts, imaginations, and strongholds. Strongholds are those, are those programs that are, you, you have programmed into your mind that causes you to go from A and react right to Z without going through any mental process at all. It's those things the Bible says here that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. And we've talked about those before. I'm not going to go back over those. We've learned that imaginations or even strongholds are, are simply fixed pictures in your mind. They're, they're, a, they're a, a picture, an image that is so embedded in your mind that it has a force in and of itself. But it's made up of images, pictures that your mind has. And we've learned that those pictures are made up of a series of dots or thoughts. And so the process of renewing your mind starts at the level of thoughts. But here Paul is talking about it backwards. He's talking about, first of all, um, ter- pulling down strongholds and casting down imaginations or arguments. And every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, and here's how you do it, by bringing every thought into captivity. Because every thought is a dot in some picture. And we've used the example of the UPS man coming to your door, knocking on the door, and presenting you with a package or an envelope. And when you sign for that, when you bring it in the house, it's now yours and it's now your responsibility. Every thought is a doorbell ring in your, at the entrance of your mind, and you choose whether you let it in or not. So what we're looking at now is, all right, if we're to take every thought captive, and we've talked about what that means, how to do that, or what that means to do it, now we're talking about what's the process you go through to take every thought. All right, I got the thought captive. I got a hold of the frogs. (laughs) Now what do I do? Now, when you get a a package from a UPS, or I'll give FedEx equal time here, uh, or whatever else, you'll use postal service. When you get a package, the way you determine where it came from is you look at, well, let's go back a second. What's important is to discern what's inside it. And one of the important ways to discern what's inside it is to figure out who sent it to you. I get emails all the time. I don't know where they came from. I don't open them. Because if I don't know where it came from, I'm not going to take the chance that there's something in there that's going to release something into my computer and therefore other computers in here. I'm very careful about it, about just opening any email just because it came to me. It's so easy to go click and then, oh my goodness, what have I done? You spend weeks trying to straighten the thing out when all you had to do is not click it. Use a little, take every email captive. (laughs) All right, does that help? Take every email captive. And some, some email programs have filters you can put in to help do this for you. And as you learn the Word of God, you'll find that your mind will begin to work certain filters for you. So how do you discern whether it's what's inside of it? Well, one of the most important ways to discern what's inside of it is to figure out where it's come from. Because if, you know, if it's come from your rich Aunt Susie, you may want to open it. Okay. All right. If, it, if it's come from your mortgage company, maybe you better should open it, but you may not want to open it. Okay, whatever it is, you need to look. You, so you look at the return address to find out where it came from to give you an idea of who sent it, which gives you a good idea of whether you really want that in your house or not. Okay, the same is true with thoughts. So we're going to talk tonight about discerning those thoughts. How do I... Because 
emails, you can slow it down and you can read it. But thoughts happen so quickly. And we talked about that in the beginning. Happen so quickly. First of all, I can take every thought captive. Well, we talked about that several weeks ago. Yes, you can because God says to. Now, it may take you a long time to master that, but you've got to begin somewhere. So if you catch one thought out of 20, that's one more thought than you were taking control of before. The more you begin to exercise control, the easier it is to control it. So don't, don't do nothing because you think, oh, this is too overwhelming. Well, you'll stay where you are. But you begin, even if you catch one thought a day, that's one you wouldn't have caught before, and that's one you can begin to control. And you'll find out as you begin to do it, it gets easier and easier and easier. With some of the techniques I'm going to teach you, it becomes even easier than you may think it is. So don't let that stop you. All right. Again, every thought has a purpose to either form a new image or to replace an old image. And we've talked about the fact that God wants to reveal to you what He's done and who He is. He want, God is a communicating God. He didn't just dictate this through these, all these books. He didn't dictate through all these authors. And then he's been silent ever since. God speaks every day. He speaks out of this Bible. He'll speak through your spirit. He wants to communicate with you because you're his child. That's how relationships are developed. He encourages us to do this. A number of places in the Bible says, come and ask me. Come and talk to me. Come and ask me what I'll do. Come and see what I'll do. Come and ask me. Seek me. If you seek me, you'll find me. If you seek me with you all your heart. Draw unto me and I'll draw near to you. God's encouraging us to communicate with him because he wants, it's not a one-sided communication. He wants to communicate back with us. All right. So we've got to learn to discern the difference because God wants to communicate to us. He wants to, he's always trying to plant dots. And Satan, we've learned, is also trying to plant dots. There's a competition going on for your mind. It's the battlefield. And they're fighting in your mind to create these images. And we control who's going to win. And if you're ignorant and therefore do nothing, there's a good chance that Satan is going to establish some strongholds. He already has, and he's going to increase them and advance them. All right, so let's talk now. We're going to talk tonight about how do I discern. I can't just read the, the return address. How do I discern where that came from? What thought, where that thought came from? Well, the first standard and the best standard and the, and the easiest standard is you judge that thought by the Word of God. You judge that thought by the Word of God. God will never give you a thought that does not line up with His Word. God will never give you a thought that does not line up with His Word. Now, that does not mean that you have to always have chapter and verse for every thought. Because there are some principles that are in the Word of God where the specific application is by using your brain to apply it. But He will never violate the principles of his word. Years ago, when we were first saved, we were part of a charismatic prayer meeting back in the 70s. And, and we were in these meetings and, you know, the Spirit of God was moving in powerful ways and people were having all kinds of supernatural things, but the Word of God wasn't taught. And I can still picture this dear lady. We knew their marriage because we had been part of a program that had ministered to their marriage. And her husband didn't come to this prayer meeting, but she did. I still see her in a corner in, a, in what she thought was a trance. And she came out of that and she, and she said, God just told me to leave my husband and divorce my husband and find somebody else who's more spiritual. Now, I didn't know much word then, but I knew enough to know that didn't sound like God. And that's kind of an extreme case. But God will not tell you something that does not line up with the principles of his word. So he's not going to tell you that you're a piece of junk. He's not going to tell you you're a failure. He's not going to tell you that you're never going to succeed when his word says that he will, my, my God will always lead me in triumph through Christ Jesus. His word is not going to tell you something about him that doesn't line up with his word. 
This word is not going to tell you that God's out to destroy you, that God's bringing sickness and disease to you to teach you something, because that does not line up with the character of his word that's revealed through his word. Jesus said, if you want to know what the Father's like, look at me. And instead of bringing sickness and disease on people, he removed it every time somebody asked him. Never did he say no to somebody, well, this is to teach you something. So you've got to take the thought and measure it against what the Word says about God's character. That means it's up to you to find out what this Word says. So you can't spend all day watching Guiding Light and as the stomach turns and Fox News or CNN News or MSNBC News and all that stuff that's out there and then quickly figure out to discern whether that thought lines up with God's Word because it may well line up with Fox News or it may well line up with as the stomach turns. It may line up with something that's out there, but you don't know whether it lines up with God's Word or not until you've spent time in God's Word. Or as a preacher I know once said, we need to spend more time, we need to put our face more in this book than in Facebook. Because you're not going to find it out there either. Let's just look at a couple of scriptures just to show you an example of this. James chapter 1. was in my Bible this morning. Okay, here it is. James 1. Oh, here's a good example of that. Let's look at verse 12, a little sidetrack here. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he's been approved, that means when he succeeded, when he's overcome, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say, listen to this, let no one say when he's tempted that I've been tempted by God. This is going to tell us something about God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone with evil. Each one when he's tempted is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when a desire is conceived, it brings forth sin, and sin, when it's fulfilled, brings forth death. So don't be deceived, my brethren, about God. What should we know about God? Every good and every perfect gift is from above. It comes down from the Father of lights, not darkness, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. If God said one thing in here once, He's not going to change His mind. He's not going to be different in your situation. This is why situational ethics doesn't work, because God's not situational. He's the situation. (laughs) By the way, people that believe in situational ethics don't practice it anyway. Okay, let's look at another verse. Let's go to Malachi chapter 3. Not what you think. Verse 6, I am the Lord, I change not. I am the Lord, I change not. He goes on to say, that's why you're not consumed, Jacob. (laughs) I'm mad at you, I'm angry at you, because I don't change, I don't consume you, because I've made promises to you. I am the Lord, I change not. Malachi 3, Numbers 23, 19. Uh, This is one of my favorites. God is not a man. God is not a man that he should lie. Men, in case you haven't noticed, that lie. Don't tell the truth. Fudge things. Make things gray. 
lie. And I, I'm not going to ask a show of hands for anybody that's never done that because then you would have done it. <laughs> so this verse tells us right up front, God's not a man. So all your experience about people telling the truth doesn't apply to him because he's not one of them. He's not a man that he should lie. Neither is the son of man that he should repent, means change his mind, because men change their mind. They may start out and not have lied, but then they change their mind of what they, it was the truth when they told you, but then they changed their mind about it. They turned it into a lie. So God doesn't change his mind either. Romans, 8, Romans 11 says, the gifts and callings of God are without repentance. Nor the son of man that he should repent. Has he not said it, and shall he not bring it to pass? Has he not spoken it, and will he not make it to good? So God's word is the truth. He does not change his word. In fact, he cannot change his word. Because truth is whatever God says. Because John 17, 17 says, Thy word is truth. It doesn't say God tells the truth. It says truth is whatever God says. So if God tries to lie, it's now the truth. All right. So you judge it by the word of God. So you take the thought and you identify the thought and the next thing to decide whether to keep it or not is does this line up with what the word of God says about him, about me, or about a situation? So if this word, if this word tells you that whatever, all right, we're going to got to move on. Okay. Second thing, judge the, judge the word, the thought, by the fruit that it creates, that it bears. Judge it by the fruit that it's going to bear, that it's intended to bear. John 10.10. The thief comes only, very important word, only. Let's put it this way. The thief sends a package to you. Only. Another way. The thief gives a thought to you only to steal, kill, or destroy. So one of the things I can do is look at that thought and, 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 and see what, is the, what kind of image is this likely to build in me. Is it an image that is likely to steal something from me? My confidence before God, my confidence with my fellow man, Christian. Is this thought likely to destroy something in my life? Destroy relationships, whatever. Still kill or destroy. If I can identify it as even having one of those or part of those or headed in that direction, I know where it came from. But, the verse goes on to say, I have come that you might have life and have that life super more, it's literally the Greek, super more abundantly. So if that thought indicates that it's likely to produce hope in me, courage in me, those are all signs of life, promise in me, then there's a very good chance I know where it came from. It came from the one who said, I have come to bring to you life. Let's kind of narrow that down a little bit. If that thought, I'll give you an example, and I've shared this before, but not in this context. I used to get up in the morning to pray, and I had a regimen where I prayed, and I'd get up, and this was back when we were living up outside of Worcester, and I was um, practicing law up there, and a really busy schedule, so I would literally get up like at five in the morning and go out when it was dark and, and walk up and down this country road where we lived on and pray, and I, you know, I had a track I would go on, so I knew about you know, how far to go out and how far to come back, and so I wouldn't get lost, and, um, and, and I would spend, I don't know if how long, I remember it was so long ago, I don't remember exactly how long I spent, but it was a good time. It was, you know, maybe 45 minutes or so. And the first 15 minutes of my prayer time was going over everything I'd done wrong the day before. 
and apologizing to God. God, I fell short in this area. I'll try harder. I, you know, I didn't do this right. I'm sorry. And, and, and what I didn't realize is those were all dots that were being planted in my mind, and I was the one that was planting them, forming an image of me that by the time I was finished that 15 minutes or so, I felt like about I was this big. And by that time, I now go in to talk to, to pray, and I have zero confidence. Why? Those thoughts stole from me whatever confidence I had when I got up. I don't do that anymore. I do just the opposite. I start out by talking about who God is and what God's like. So my eyes aren't even on me to begin with. I start out... In fact, I think when Jesus gave a model for prayer, he did the same thing. Our Father who art in heaven... How, how, how close I came to making mistakes today, even though I didn't. And all the people around me, how many mistakes they've made. No, he didn't do that at all. How hard this is and what a tough time I'm having and how much opposition there is out there. No, he didn't do that at all. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed, holy, sacred is your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done in this earth as it is in heaven. A beginning, a yielding of himself. Boy, you know, you start doing that and going over scriptures and and beginning to talk to God out of the scriptures about who he is and what he's like. Then you go from that into things he's done for you. I I do that every time when I get up in the morning to pray. I go over that. Different ones each day. But guess what I'm doing? I'm planting thoughts in my mind that build confidence before God that bring life and strength and hope. So thoughts that come to you that tell you what a lousy Christian you are are not coming from God. They're probably not even coming from you unless you've been well trained by Him already. But they're coming from the thief who's coming to steal your confidence. See, when you're born again, God puts a confidence in you. That's why it says in Hebrews 10.35, don't throw it away. You can't throw something away you don't have. So, you know, you can't throw away that hope diamond because you don't. I assume you don't have it. If you had it, you could throw it away. But if you don't have something, you can't throw it away. So to say don't throw away your confidence implies you already have it. So part of what Satan's after is your confidence because your confidence creates an image of you before God that gives you an openness to walk in and talk to him openly and freely and that's about the most threatening thing you could do to the devil is to get to know what God's like because when you get to know what God's like you get a pretty idea, good idea of what he's like and now you can discern the difference a whole lot easier. So the fruit, one of the ways is you look at the fruit is this building confidence. Another way is does this draw me closer to God Or is this creating distance with God? Are these thoughts drawing me closer to God? See, I have had God clean my clock. You know what that means? I mean, just say one word to me that it felt like I was ripped right open inside. But it felt so good. See, when God corrects you, when God corrects you, it builds confidence. Why? First of all, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So whatever God says to you brings faith. So when God says to you, look, Ron, you shouldn't be doing that, what he's really saying is, I believe better of you. I know you can do better than that. He's communicating to you. He believes in you because he knows you, and you didn't measure up today, so tomorrow you can. When the devil talks to you about the same thing, he approaches it differently. He shows you what you did wrong and then uses that as a basis to attack your character and your heart and your nature by saying, there you go, you did it again. And they could use the same words but communicate a different message. You understand, and we've talked about this before, and I know most of you know the scripture, where Jesus said that, that... Satan is a liar, was a liar from the beginning. He's a liar. And he's the father of lies, which means all lies have their 
birth from him. And there is no truth in him. Now listen carefully. That doesn't mean that he can't tell you the truth. But when he tells you the truth, he's lying to you about the truth. If you've got an animal in your yard that you, know, that you don't want that's causing trouble and you decide, oh, don't, throw, don't write me letters, this is just an example, I don't do this, and you decide that you want to poison them, you put poison in something that's real. So if you were going to kill it with a piece of hamburger with poison in it, you, would put, you'd use, you wouldn't go to the pet store and buy a plastic hamburger patty that the dog would chew and paste poison on it because whatever that animal is not going to eat the plastic thing because it's not real. That's the same reason that counterfeiters don't make $3 bills. Because they only counterfeit what's real. So Satan takes something that's true and then lies to you about what it means to you or about you. So you may have made a mistake. You may have done something. You may have actually committed a sin. If he talks to you about that, he'll tell you you committed a sin, and that's true. But then he'll lie to you about what that means. One of his favorite techniques is to bring a nasty thought in your mind and then come around behind it and tell you what a lousy Christian you are for having that thought. Well, it didn't come from you. It came from him. What he's after is to undermine your confidence before God by condemning you. Go with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. And there are a lot of other aspects of this we could look at. Paul's here talking about correction that he brought to this church, these churches, as we talked about earlier. Now, we're going to pick up in verse 6. Nevertheless, God who comforts the downcast comforted us by the coming of Titus. Why? Because he'd sent Titus to find out how they were doing after he sent the letter of correction. Not only by his coming, but also by the consolation with which he was comforted in you. When he told us of your earnest desire, your mourning, that was the mourning over what they'd done wrong, and your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced even more. Now he's going to talk about what his purpose was. For even if I made you sorry with my letter, that's the missing letter, we don't have that letter, I do not regret it. For though I did regret it, but I perceive that the same epistle or letter made you sorry, though only for a while. I rejoice now, not that you were made sorrow, sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. So when God corrects us, He intends to bring sorrow to our heart because we're sorry that we disappointed Him. We're sorry that we sinned. We let Him down. We let ourselves down. We may have let other people down. We're sorry about that. But godly sorrow, the fruit of godly sorrow, is repentance, a changed mind and a changed heart. I'm never going to do that again. Not, I'm sorry I got caught. That's not godly sorrow. But I, I, it's really the cry of King David when Nathan said, you're the man. And David's first reaction was, I've sinned against my God. Not I'm in trouble, not I've gotten caught, not I've sinned against my people, although it was later on, but I have hurt my God. And because that's where his heart was, his repentance stuck. Saul, his predecessor, also got caught in sin. And he was sorry also, but he was sorry he got caught. He was sorry he was embarrassed. And we know that because he pled with the prophet Samuel to deal with him privately so that his leaders wouldn't know the fullness of what he'd done. He wanted to save face, which means he still had a face he was holding on to. David put his face in the dirt. And so here, but this is what we're talking about. The fruit 
of Saul, of God's, of these thoughts, the fruit of these thoughts that came from God to correct them brought, uh, the, 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 the fruit of those thoughts brought a godly sorrow and a changed heart and a changed mind and a changed attitude. It bore positive fruit. Verse 9 again. Now I rejoice not that you were made sorry, but that your sorrow led to repentance. For you were made sorry in a godly manner, with a godly purpose, that you might suffer loss from us in nothing. That's always God's motive, is to preserve you, protect you, even in the correction. For we observe this, verse 11, that you were sorrowed in a godly manner, with diligence produced in you the clearing of yourself with indignation and fear. Excuse me, verse 10. For godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation, not to be regretted. But the sorrow of the world produces death. That's the difference between conviction and condemnation. Conviction is a correction by God that jerks the slack out of us and sets us on the right course if we don't fight it and argue with it. It builds confidence in us of God's love for us. Hebrews chapter 12, starting in verse 5, discusses a process by which God corrects us. First of all, with His Word. But He ends up by saying, God corrects us. You've got fathers that were evil. In other words, compared to God they were. And He says, and they corrected you because they loved you. How much more does the Father of lights So God's correction is a sign of His love, a sign that we belong to Him because it says in Hebrews chapter 12 that if if He's not correcting somebody, then they're not legitimate children of His. So the, the sign that He corrects you is that He cares about you. By the way, we as parents can learn something from that. Okay. So we judge it by the fruit. Is it bringing me closer to God? Is it bringing correction? Is it encouraging me? Not making you feel better. Feelings have nothing to do with this. But what's it doing inside of you in your relationship with God? What's it doing you inside of you in your relationship to other people? Is it drawing you closer to other people? Or is it creating walls of separation? So when you start getting, and this is a real danger, you start getting thoughts of discerning. I have the gift of discerning spirits. God usually doesn't give that gift to immature people. Usually. And if you have that gift, you need to read James chapter, I think it's 3 or 4. Because he talks about being careful when you start judging somebody else. Because then you put yourself in the place of the, of the law giver. And you know who that is. And elsewhere he says, it's in Romans 14 and several other places, he says, you know, don't judge another man's servant. Because what if God might be able to make them stand? And he says, indeed, he can make them stand. Conduct we can judge. But people, their character and their nature, no. And so we have to be careful in our relationship so we can get thoughts. And the problem is you can get thoughts right out of the Word of God. And the more you know the Word, the more armor you have, the more ammunition you have. Well, they're not doing this, and they're not doing this, and they're saying this, and they're doing this, and da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da. It's interesting because Paul says in 2 Corinthians earlier on, he says, be careful because the letter of this book kills. So you can tell whether God's spoken to you because you can take this book, others can take this book, and cut you into shreds with it. It's called religion right out of the Word of God. But he says the spirit of it brings life. There again, it's discerning. Same word. Different source. Who's speaking it to you? Okay. So we judge by the fruit, and there are other things you can do. Just by looking at God's character. Is this the kind of thing God would say to you? Look at Satan's character. Look at God's goal. Is, that the kind, is, this, is this helping to bring you along towards the upward call of, the, of God that's in Christ Jesus in, second, in, in Philippians chapter 3? Is this, is this part of the character of God, the purpose of God in your life, the direction of God in your life, or is this a distraction? 
as a pastor, I have to learn to discern where things are coming from, what their purpose is. And sometimes there are issues that come to me that are real and they're true, but they're not mine to touch. I'll give you a good example of this. I heard a pastor share about this. And he, he was sharing in a, in a, actually it was a Lafayette's meeting a few years ago. And uh, it's a large church. And he was saying, I was, I was counseling a pastor who was struggling with some issues in his church over the phone. And he said, suddenly God just dropped this image in me. He said, when you're a leader, and he said, in this case, a pastor of a church, he said, you're like a school bus driver. It's not your bus. But you've been assigned to drive that bus. And the purpose of your driving that bus is to take the passengers who aren't yours either to a destination that isn't yours either. So your job is to get those passengers safely to that destination in this bus that you've been provided with. It's your tool. So the analogy here is the church is God's church. The people are His people. And there's a destination that He has for each church and for the believers of each church. So you're driving along. It's a nice spring day. The windows are open. And you're driving along and all of a sudden... There's a fly that's buzzing around in front of you. Well, if you've ever had a fly or a bug in your car, it's distracting, especially if you don't like bugs. So what do you do? You know, get that fly and hit that fly and kind of catch that fly. Well, guess what? While you're chasing the fly, there's several things you're not doing. One is you're not looking at the road. Another thing is your hands aren't at 10 and 2. <laughs> They're not on the wheel. Now, the fly's real, and he's annoying, but his purpose in being sent there, by the way, the name Beelzebub means Lord of the Flies. That fly's purpose, although he's real, is to distract you from your real purpose. So you have to discern that fly's not come to help me take these people to that destination. That fly's not come as a father or as parents to get our family where it needs to be, to bring our family along. That fly's not come so that this business can grow and succeed. This thought is a distraction. It's not something that's helping carry out God's purpose that He's entrusted to me. The fruit, where's it headed? What's the effect of it? What's it leading towards? All right, let's move on. Now, technically, God doesn't give you thoughts. He doesn't open your mind and deposit it in. Satan can talk to you. God doesn't talk to you through your mind. We learned that in the beginning. God has a much better way of communicating with us. See, God put, his, put your, a spirit in you that's born out of him. And then God, it says in Ezekiel, took his own spirit in addition and put his spirit in you. So there's your spirit born of God with God's nature and God's desires and God's tendencies. Then there's his spirit that's put in you. Uh, I don't know if we have time to do this. Yeah, let's go quickly. Let's go to... Let's go to... uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. You should know this by heart by now. Verse 9. As it is written, eye has not seen, ears not hear, nor has it entered the hearts of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. So there's things we don't know. That's what that says. There's things God has for us we don't know. But, verse 10, God has revealed them to us through his spirit. For his spirit searches all all things, yes, even the depths of God. So while there's an issue in your life, while there's something going on, God wants to communicate to you what He has for you, His answer, His wisdom, and the Spirit of God is working to draw, search the depths of God's heart to find out the wisdom that He has for you. Then He brings that wisdom out and He communicates that wisdom directly to your spirit. So it goes from God's spirit to your spirit and inside of you, 
They're welded together. It's a perfect communication. Just like it was with that first man and woman in the garden that we talked about. Well, how come I don't hear clearly? How come I don't understand everything God has to say? How come I haven't heard from Him in a long time? Because they're located down in the middle of you. There's another 18 inches they got to go. That's from here to here. Because the process is this. God perfectly communicates His will from His Spirit, searching His heart, directly to your spirit. Now the job of your mind, we learned earlier, is to discern what your spirit is picking up. And then understand that and begin to work with that to accomplish it. And here's the problem. We learned this earlier. Your mind is a gate that allows what is in your spirit to come out or controls what comes out or what doesn't come out. So when it bubbles up inside of you with God's communicating, your mind tries to interpret that bubbling in line with the images that it has of God and of you that we've talked about already are strongholds and they were put in you to exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. So God's trying to communicate with you. Your spirit begins to pick it up and sense it. Now, the, the more you've walked with God, the more your spirit's grown and understands things, but it's picking it up. And then your mind is now trying to discern what that is. But it's going to work in terms of the pictures and images and strongholds that it has. So if what you're picking up doesn't fit something that you see God is like or you're like, it'll reject it. Or if you pick up something and it doesn't line up with what you want to do, you'll reject it. If you have children, you know what I'm talking about. Because with the same ears that picked up the words from your mouth, time to go to bed, also can pick up the same words, anybody want ice cream? (laughs) And if you notice, there's a little more openness to hear ice cream than clean your room or rake the yard. Called selective hearing. What's the process of selection? Their will. Well, guess what? We're just bigger children. And it may not be ice cream or clean your room. It may be something God's calling you to do. You just don't want to do. Or it may not even be that far along. You may decide, look, I'm just going to do what I want to do. Well, if you've made up your mind to do what you want to do or have things your way, you're going to have a hard time really discerning what God's saying to you because you're only going to be open to what fits into what you want. All right. Now, I went through that. So they say God doesn't deposit thoughts in your mind. He speaks them to you or gives them to you through His Spirit. But your mind now has to discern whether those are coming from God or not. And thoughts have a voice to them, a sound to them. And we'll talk about this now. When God's speaking to you, when God's giving you ideas or inspirations or thoughts or correction, there's a certain quality that it has. Turn with me to 1 Kings chapter 19. First Kings 19. What's happened here is Elijah has had this big standoff with the prophets of Baal. Incredible day. I mean, in that day... He saw fire come down out of heaven because he called it down. He saw, what, three or four hundred prophets of Baal. He, he, they were, they were, the anointing was so strong, they lined up for him to execute him, basically. 
He's gone. Jezebel issues a death warrant for him. He flees in panic. God hides him out, feeds him. And now he's gone and hidden in a cave. Verse 9. And there he went into a cave and spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, Where are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I've been very zealous for the Lord of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they seek to take my life. In other words, I've had it, I'm burned out, I've done everything you told me to do, and I'm ended up, I'm hunted man right now, and she wants my life, and most likely she's going to get it. Verse 11, Then God said to him, Go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. Behold, the Lord passed by, and a great strong wind tore into the mountains, and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord, but the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still, small voice. In the Hebrew, still, small voice is literally a delicate whispering voice. The point is this. When God's giving you thoughts, when He's communicating with you, it very rarely is loud and noisy and boisterous and and demonstrative. I've had God speak to me loudly once. I never want to hear that again. It was a voice of correction like I've never heard before and I don't ever want to hear it again. The only other people, the other kinds of voices like that that I've heard are warnings that people have gotten. You don't want that kind of warning. That's because you haven't been listening, most likely. But the point is this: it's a delicate, whispering voice. Now contrast that to the wind that was not just; it was a tornado. It was tearing a mountain apart. To an earthquake. And to a blazing fire. Now let's talk about the. Let's go to John ten. Well, I'll just tell you there because of time. John ten, Jesus says talks earlier than verse ten. He says, "My sheep hear my voice. My sheep hear my voice." And of course, the image is there, and we've we've talked about this before. I think I may have talked about it last week. Is in in a in nations like Israel where there are a lot of uh, shepherds, they'll often mix their flocks together to go somewhere because there's safety in numbers. And then it comes time to separate out. And I think I told you last week, Marianne Brown, when she was here, she, she told us one time, uh, she said, I, I watched from a bus. I watched this happen. The guide says, you watch what's going to happen. As they crossed the road, there were different paths, and, and one of the shepherds made a noise like this. Another made a clucking sound. They made different vo- sounds with their voices. And when they did, sheep's head went up, and they just separated off following their shepherd because they knew his voice. They knew the sound, the distinctive sound of the shepherd's voice. How did they come to know the sound of his voice? By living with him, by spending time listening, by learning, oh no, that was a cricket, that's not the shepherd. It's a learning process. It's a learning process. It's a learning process, but it requires a skill that very few people have, have learned nowadays. It's called the skill of listening. We're all very good at talking, but very few of us are really good at being quiet and just listening inside. There's a reason why our lives are so full with activity and noise and clutter and demands and busy all the time. It's so we don't ever come to the place where we learn to be quiet and still and develop the skill to listen. But God hasn't bought into busy schedules. God hasn't bought into a, 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 a. God doesn't have an iPhone and a smartphone with his calendar on it. I mean, I got a calendar that appears on three different instruments. I make a change on one, it appears on all the. Isn't that wonderful? It just means I can put more things on, things on my calendar. But do I have time with him? That requires discipline of learning to make time with him a priority, a consistent priority. And then when you do that, it's easier to discern what his voice sounds like 
and what the voice of the enemy sounds like. But the contrast here we saw in 1 Kings is that the enemy's voice is noisy. It's pushy. It's, it's, it's demanding. He pressures you. Well, you haven't done that. You haven't done that. You've done that. One of the words he'll use is again. You did it again. You did it again. You did it again. He's pushy. He'll drive you. A shepherd leads his sheep. Cowboys drive cattle. Satan will try to drive you and push you, pressure you. I've learned to try very hard to not make decisions under pressure because almost always that pressure is not God because God's not controlled by time. You miss a deadline? I've had God make up for missed deadlines. Pressure. You've got to do it now. 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 And under pressure, it's hard to discern. And I've learned that those kinds of thoughts almost never have come from God. And the last thing we'll cover tonight about thoughts and discerning is their physical location. Proverbs twenty twenty seven says, The spirit of man is the candle of the Lord, leading on the inward parts. God guides you through your spirit. Uh, Romans 8 says that all who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. God's put His Spirit in us to guide us and to lead us, not our minds. 1 Corinthians chapter 2 talks about, and it is all in Ephesians also, it talks about those that are led by their minds are, are going off into futile and vain things. And we live in a world that's more informed, more intelligent, more educated than ever in the history of man and more confused more strife-torn, more destructive, more demonic than ever before. Why? It's the vanity of the human mind apart from God. And so it's not our minds that lead us. It's learning to discern where the, where the understanding is and, and your spirit. King James talked about your belly. It's your inner man. It's your center of being down in here. So I learned to discern, was this, was this down in here or was this something I got in my mind? Was this something I got in my mind? Another thing I've learned to do is to trace thoughts back or listen to my own words. You know, well, I just, I knew it was God because I thought such and such. Oh, what do you think with? You think with your mind. So if I can trace back the conclusion from a series of thoughts, that means it was produced from my mind, not coming up from my spirit. Now, I can get something in my spirit that my mind can begin to grasp and understand and discern what to do with it, but if it originates in my mind, most likely it's not God. Satan will use your mind. He wants to keep your mind busy. He has no contact directly with your spirit unless you listen to him and deposit his thoughts in your spirit. Okay. And again, learn to trace your thoughts back to the original. If you can go back and say, oh, it's just because I thought so-and-so, then it's a result of your reasonings, not a word that God has given you. Because God very rarely gives you reasons. He just says, do this, don't do this. Be careful, be aware, go ahead. Yes, no. I mean, he gives directions, but he very seldom gives an explanation of why. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not to your own understanding. In all your ways, know Him. The word acknowledge means know Him. Be in contact with Him. And He will direct your steps. Let's pray. Father, the mind that you've given us is an amazing tool. It's an amazing instrument. With all our computers, with all our intelligence with all our devices that we have that go so fast, we've still not come up with anything that begins to rival the human mind that you created. And you've given each one of us one of those minds. And we're learning that your word of God tells us that because we've been born into a fallen world, because we ourselves were fallen before we came to you, Because when we came to you, what you did is you deposited your kingdom down inside in our spirit. 
but our minds still function with the old thoughts and the old strongholds, that you have left it to us, the project and the responsibility to renew our mind, to change the processes by which we think. We thank you that you've not left us alone to do that. You've given us instructions and you've given us tools that are anointed by you to do that. And So, Father, as we continue down that road in our study together, may you take what we've heard tonight, Father, and begin to open our eyes and give us understanding in our own life with our own thinking as we go through the rest of this week until next week. We begin to become aware, Lord, of thoughts in our minds that we may not have been aware of before. We begin to learn how to catch those thoughts and examine them and discern where they've come from and what their purpose is. Father, you said to take every thought captive. That means we can do that. And to bring it into obedience to Christ, who is the Word of God. And therefore, we can do that. So we declare tonight by faith, we can do all things through Christ, who strengthens us. So we can learn to do this. And thank you for the power and the anointing of your Spirit who is in us to enable us, to help us to do that, and the grace that you give us to do that very thing. For that, we thank you in advance. In Jesus' name, amen.